Street today, everyone. I'm Tyler Coe. Welcome in, however you came in. Very happy to have you here on a Monday evening. Uh, remember that you can watch this show, the recorded versions of it, on YouTube as well as listen on Spotify, iTunes, and all your favorite audio platforms. We do the show live each Monday uh, on Twitch, and I keep saying Monday. It's not Monday, is it? It is Tuesday. I knew I had something coming on. Uh, I came on and I was like, wait, am I? It's not, it's not the. Listen, it's 2021. It's been hectic. Time is a flat circle. I'm just happy to be here on a Tuesday, Tuesday, to do this show. So usually we do the shows on Monday at 7 p.m. I had to move it to today for our special guest, which I would move it to any day, honestly, for her to get on. So, um, I do want to tell you guys, I, I, I kind of had an interesting Tuesday. Um, I did a speaking engagement, lucky to do so, at a local high school for NAMI. Uh, NAMI does a program called Ending the Silence, which is aimed at young adults and trying to get them to do just that, in the silence, trying to get help, trying to speak up and uh, try and get those resources when it comes to their mental health because they're going through a very tumultuous time, obviously through puberty and we all know what high school is. High school is kind of a nightmare for most people. Um, I know it was for a lot of us. It was for me. So um, I get up there with other presenters um, to basically tell a condensed story um, about my experiences and everything that I've been through. And obviously that's still complete because I'm still going through that process. Um, and just kind of letting them know what is it like to have a mental illness? You know, what are signs to look for, warning signs that you can pay attention to with not only yourself, but your classmates, your friends. And these kids were super attentive. Uh, they, they, you know, no talking, heads up, paying attention. I was actually really impressed because I know if I was in that crowd, I probably wouldn't be listening at all. I'd probably be snoozing. So we had a great group of kids. They were freshmen. And so all around, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. Uh, just kind of getting started. And after we're done presenting, we did a little Q&A. So all these kids get to ask questions. Um, almost every single hand was raised. And we were in a massive auditorium. So like at least 100 plus kids <laughs> in this room wanting to ask questions about what we were talking about. Um, and the questions that they asked really got to the crux of the problem with our health care system. Affordability and access. And when they started asking these questions, I got kind of angry and I kind of I had to suppress that emotion. Um, that anger is only my own. Um, it's no more important than yours or, or theirs. But what they were asking really, really frustrated me because all these kids, which they were asking great questions, but the common theme was how much does it cost to get help? I had kids asking, um, you know, how much specifically dollar amount does it cost to go get a diagnosis? How much does it cost to go see a psychiatrist? I had a kid ask me um, if my parents can afford uh, for me to go see a doctor, what else can I do? Who can I talk to? Do I need a parent to go do that? One kid even asked me, uh, what if I do if my parents won't allow me to talk to somebody? I don't like the idea, the same as you as young kids having to worry about how much money it costs to get help. So for the people in the back, again, <laughs> kids are asking, how much does it cost money, money to get help, to get help? I don't like that we live in a world right now that 
you have to pay to get better. That should not have to be the case. It's rage-inducing, I know. I'm preaching to the choir with you guys. Most of you guys know that, and those of you listening to the show know that as well. And today was a reminder to me that I have to get in the fight even more so, that you guys need to get into the fight. Um, I don't want the future ranks of children having to worry about money to fix a problem that they literally had zero decision in. You're a human being. Mental illness affects all of us. You have zero control on whether you have it or not. Period. And the children are the future, right? If you have premium insurance and a stable home, then you can have it. We need to change it. We got to flip the script with it. Um, Because it's not just our children that we punish for not having the means. We punish those without means. Those in our society that never get the upper hand, the heels, the disenfranchised. So how do we begin to change that? How do you make it truly equal for the afflicted? How do we help those people who can't get help? I don't have those answers. You guys know that. That's why I bring on very smart, educated experts onto this show to speak to that matter. So with that said, welcoming onto the program a tremendous human being. Uh, She's done it all, folks. There are too many organizations, advisory councils, and groups to fit into this intro, but to name a few. She has worked with Leadership Austin, which is an amazing nonprofit in Austin. Uh, She was a leader at Integral Care, interim CEO at the Literacy Coalition of Central Texas, and is currently the interim uh, executive director of NAMI Central Texas. So welcoming to the program, my new good friend, Brenda coleman Beatty. Brenda, how are you today? I'm awesome on Tuesday. It's a good day, Tuesday. (laughs) On Tuesday. That's my bad. Let me put them on my headphones real quick. I I always forget to do that. Oh, gosh. You know, Brenda, I'm just a mess on a Tuesday, so hopefully you can help straighten me out a little bit. <laughs> um, all right. Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, Tyler. All Thank right. you for inviting me and for having me. It's an honor. Yes, ma'am. Um, I, I, no, the honor is all ours, really. Um, you know, we had connected. We had done a broadcast event together uh, just a while ago for NAMI Walks. Um, which was just such a lot of fun. And I got to talk to you uh, because we have a mutual connection. And I knew right when I talked to you, I was like, I, I got to get, get more of Brenda. I, I got to talk to her. I got to get, get more involved with her. So, you know, one of the things we first spoke about and one of the first things I realized when I talked to you is that you are a doer. You just get things done. And it made me be like, okay, what do you need, Brenda? Like, <laughs> how do I start doing like that? And we talked a little bit about how you got started uh, down this journey of being a mental health advocate and working in mental health. And for our audience, could you share a little bit about that before we get started? Sure, Tyler, it's my pleasure. I'm a family member and friend to many people who live with a mental illness. And our family is an open book and it has been all of my life. My sister Elaine is six years older than I am and I've had her honor her privilege of being a family member to teach me much about living with the mental illness, but also being a friend, a sister, uh, enabled me to be that for other people as well. And so our family has been an open book. I've lived that journey with Elaine as I continue to today. And so I'm grateful for her and all she's taught me and all that many other family member members and friends have taught me as well about mental illness and what it means to be mentally healthy and uh, well human being and also to know that you're human and among many who live with a mental illness uh your stats as you showed previously uh as part of the lead-in 
Tyler indicated that one in five, but I think people are getting more focused on the fact that one in four, so 25% of this country are people who live with a mental illness. And I think that number will go even higher because all of us have some way to touch and be impacted by mental illness. And I guess if we wanna call it a silver lining, more people because of COVID are now willing to talk more about it and say, I need help. I believe I'm a person who experienced a mental health condition. And so where do I go? Who do I tap into? And it's reducing the stigma somewhat. Stigma still exists, meaning people are afraid to acknowledge that they or a family member have a mental illness. But sadly, but in a good way, COVID has enabled people to say, I am not alone. There are many people like me who, quote, I hate this term, normalize that it's okay to not be okay. I, I, I can uh, agree more. I mean, we had a young lady today at, at, at the presentation who actually kind of said that same thing. She's like, well, well, I don't want to feel bad about myself. And it's hard to be able to tell somebody that, you know, I, I told them, as, as I'm sure you know, like asking for help is the easiest thing to do, but getting there is the most difficult thing we can do as a human being because we just don't want to do it. We don't want to feel bad inside. We don't want to feel that pressure, that awkwardness. Um, that's something we got to get to. And you know what you said with the stats, one in four, um, I always tell our viewers here, those are the only ones that are documented because there's so many other people that, that don't, yeah. uh, haven't spoke up or haven't been able to get there to that place to be a part of that. Um, and, you know, Brenda, being a part of it, you know, another thing that stuck out to me when we first spoke is that um, you're a person of the world. And you kind of spoke to that a little bit with your family. You have family everywhere. You have traveled the globe. You have lived it all. You have seen so many things. And I imagine that gives you such uh, wisdom and knowledge and tools that make your perspective on mental health, your work in mental health, uh, such a unique one. Yeah, it, it does. Let me give you a small story uh that I'll do Cliff Notes version because you may have more questions of me. But I had the fortune during my senior year of high school, and we won't talk about what year that was, but <laughs> um, I had the pleasure of living and, and becoming a family member to many people in Brazil. In one of my families, I had an aunt who was a person living in, for lack of a better term, if you think about um, a, a almost like a senior care home, even though she wasn't a senior, but a place for people who live with mental illness. So I would go visit this aunt with my mom all the time. So as I was getting ready to return to the United States, she got me a wonderful gift that she said, I bought this for you with my money, Brenda. And when you see this, I want you to remember me. And what she gave me, and I still have it in pristine shape, was a fly swatter. And I'm thinking, Gia, why are you giving me this fly swatter? And she goes, you know, you swat flies because you have people around you who don't understand a mental illness. But you are my fly swatter because you made sure when you came to visit me that people knew I was a person, too, because of how you treated me. So I never equated a fly swatter as having impact. But I look at that fly swatter, which is in my office often, and I'm reminded of my aunt, uh, who's no longer with us. But uh, that happened in Brazil, in addition to what I experienced here in the United States and other places in, in the world as well. I think that's that's a unique way of, of hearing that. That's a great line, fly swatter. I mean, there's a lot of flies out there, Brenda, that we have to deal with on a 
a, a daily basis. It's really tough yeah. to do. Um, you know, it's been written about you, Brenda, and in just talking to the, f- the few times that I have, I know this to be true, that you are a woman on a mission to make mental health services, like I showed back on uh, my chalkboard, available to all people. Because right now in this country specifically, they're not. Every single type of human being, like we've just talked about, is and will be affected by a mental illness or a mental condition. And countless studies show that minorities tend to be overrepresented in those need of mental health treatment, including those that are of the poorest of means, uh, the homeless, the institutionalized, those in prison. You know, it goes so much more than that because there's such a distrust in the healthcare system in this country that historically has treated minorities terribly. The stigmas and the stereotypes that reside in the medical community that continue to hinder those people to get help that they need. And in your journey to help everyone get equal care, what have you seen change, if at all, over the years? And what steps, you know, need to continue to be taken to ensure equality for all people when it comes to their mental health? You know, Tyler, let me give you a very personal journey. Um, And I won't name the name of the mental condition um, because it's not relevant, but it's an example of how people of color are stigmatized and put in a box uh, and stereotyped to say that because you are a person of XYZ color, uh, then you must have XYZ mental illness or mental condition. Uh, My sister perhaps uh, went undiagnosed uh, Comparatively speaking, most people uh, with this particular mental condition that she has are diagnosed generally in their early to mid 20s. So those of you can put two and two together. But she was in her early 30s before she was diagnosed because it was deemed, even though we were an African-American, black, middle class family, south side of Chicago, two parent household, able to pay for services, had health care. But it was deemed that, oh, maybe because you're, quote, African-American or black you don't have this mental illness and it took a while for them to hone in on the fact oh she does but she's not white so it it was an example that was a personal journey a personal experience in my own family and i can't tell you how many people i know or know about who also were quote stereotyped to have xyz mental condition uh because it was stereotyped particularly for blacks and african-americans when obviously had they done the the testing lack of a better term or the traditional diagnosis, they would have discovered, wow, Jane Doe, John Doe does indeed have this mental condition, which they perceived was not prevalent among uh, African-Americans because maybe it was deemed something that only upper income white people had. That's tough. That's really tough to hear. Um, And I mean, and that continues on as far as, you know, everything else that we deal with in this country. You and I spoke about this when we talk about PTSD, we almost exclusively reserve that for soldiers which not to marginalize them at all because they absolutely deal with that but that's trauma of any kind and being a minority in this country and going through civil unrest and civil rights movements and seeing the way that authorities and those that work forces um can treat people of color i mean when we talk about kids seeing a family member accosted by a police officer that's ptsd that's not just they're having a rough time. That's something that I think goes undiagnosed a lot, and studies show that it does. I mean, so fighting back against all that is such a big deal. Um, kind of piggybacking off of what you said when you're talking about those stereotypes that a black person can't have this, um, being careful with this to you know keep them anonymous, but I work with somebody who is in healthcare and is an Asian woman and overwhelmingly sees people uh, of the Asian community that 
parents or family members simply do not believe that it exists because of the stereotype of like you have to be good and we have to be steady and that doesn't that's not based in reality at all because there is no person on the planet that doesn't deal with a mental illness you know that's so true uh many many actually at least two decades ago before it became so pc or politically correct i did a lot of research and was engaged with uh different professional organizations looking at cultural competency that's a whole nother story unto its own but a lot of people of, of different ethnic and racial backgrounds have their internal or intra-community way of accommodating and managing that and in some cases maybe well if we keep it under the cover we'll we'll handle it on our own let's not talk about it let's not share it because we want to be the model or ideal citizen right and so instead of letting ourselves be ourselves and to acknowledge that we are human and we experience things um oftentimes in our zest to 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 caretake and to uh, make sure that our loved one isn't harmed, we sometimes don't allow them to then receive the services that they need. And it's all done with care and protection, not realizing that that person that they care about, they love, is in fact entitled to care. And that uh, with time, we have progressed to better uh, understanding of the nuances, not all of them, but some of them, uh, that impact different ethnic and racial uh, communities. Yeah, and going going back to what I had talked about at the top and, and at the presentation, which I know you've seen this throughout your career, is that when we're talking about access, you kind of touch on it right there, that a lot of that kind of starts in the family, no matter who you are. And it was heartbreaking today to hear kids talk about that. Well, like, what if my parents don't believe in that? What, you know, what if they don't let me go talk to somebody? In, in your journey, what has been the best advice that you could give to a young person like that, somebody who knows that something's wrong, but they don't know quite what, they know it's been persistent, you know, what have you seen be the best way to get that access, which unfortunately sometimes the biggest roadblock is our parents? You know, Tyler, that's a very timely question. I also did research on this uh, as well <laughs> on behalf of the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health uh, as a consultant. I worked with them many years ago when they did something that was very, very ahead of its time, which was called collaborative or integrated healthcare. And specifically in the context of you asking about youth and kids, they looked at if you go to your physical health doctor, how can they facilitate and begin to diagnose that there's something that's going on that we need to address in this particular person, particularly a person of color, but particularly youth. So there's a document uh, that is commonly used now in a lot of offices of, of, uh, of, of if you will, uh, kit docs or other docs, which is called the Patient Health Questionnaire 9, PHQ-9. And, and there's an equivalent, that's the adult one. There's an equivalent one for kids, but they just go through these questions. Did you feel sad today? Do you feel this way all the time? And it gives the doctor, who's not a psychiatrist, for example, a sense of this person, this child needs more attention because of how they answered these questions. And therefore, I, as your primary care general doctor, family doctor, can either begin to work with you and the, the child and your family, or if by virtue of the way those questions are answered, we need to, if you will, get you to the person who specializes in psychiatric issues. So a child psychiatrist. But I'm not gonna go off on a tangent because not just in our state, but throughout the nation, child psychiatrists are at a premium because there's so few of them. And talking about affordability, that's a huge issue. So. Another conversation for another day, but that whole issue of when 
um, young people under the age of 18, for example, uh, and as young as eight in some cases or younger, when they need psychiatric care or mental health care, uh, if they need to see a psychiatrist, that's oftentimes very problematic because of the lack of child psychiatrists, and then more importantly, the expense. So that's one of the dynamics that uh, still exists in, in our country that we still need to troubleshoot to see how we, we do that. Because like with any illness, there's stages, and I don't want to use the morbid sense of thinking about stages of cancer. So, you know, they're their numbers, if you will. So when you get to a certain stage of cancer, of you live with it, but it's to the point where you need to go to your oncologist all the time versus if you're uh, in remission or curity, you know, if you will, uh, then you don't need that intensity of care. Your internist as an adult can handle that. So likewise for children, when they're at a certain point, that's like you need the specialist, the person, the psychiatrist. And to, to a large degree, therapists can help too, but... Uh, uh, as you may know, psychiatrists are medical doctors or MDs, so they can prescribe. That's the key. They can prescribe the medication that may be needed in addition to the child, for example, getting therapy from a therapist or, or someone else. But the prescribing part is the key part that unless a person is an advanced practitioner or nurse or uh, a physician assistant who can prescribe, it catapults it for children into the point of saying you need the psychiatrist. Which is a tough thing to get to. You know, one of the stats that always sticks out to me the most uh, when I was starting my, you know, um, onboarding with you guys in NAMI was the average age or the average amount of time between diagnosis and treatment is 11 years. And thinking back to my story when I started this, I was like, gosh, I got misdiagnosed when I was 12 and then I quit. And then I didn't start getting professional help and medication until I was 25. Mm -hmm. And I know we have to kind of squeeze that, that gap. And it is one of those toughest things that you just mentioned is that, and you can go off on that tangent if you want to. This would be the platform <laughs> to do it. Um, you have nothing but friends here. But that is the toughest part. I think that's wonderful information for our viewers to get because I wasn't even aware of that, is that you could go to a doctor and have that form filled out so they could get you in proper care because it is. To give folks an idea, uh, I had to get re-diagnosed for bipolar, Brenda, which I know we uh, it's not even a thing. It's well-documented, but... And getting a new psychiatrist, I had to start that payment all over again, you know, and yeah. it's it's funny how it works because it's it's expensive to get the initial onboarding, then the follow up. And then my medication is like 10, 15 bucks. It's almost backwards. Um, yep. And it, it, it's definitely a frustrating thing. So um, I, I, I think that's wonderful that, I you know, that's a new resource that I didn't know about. I'm going to have to get that information from you so we can post that in our Discord channel and, and give that to our folks. Yeah. Um, and, you know, something we talked about, Brenda, too, that I, I kind of want to go back to with our former discussion was uh, we talked about upbringing. And this kind of goes into it as well as that, you know, I told you that in my uh, formative years, you know, not all groups of people are the same. Right. And having to learn that use the term monolithic. And I think that's such a good term to use when we're talking about mental health and breaking down those walls of those boxes that you were talking about that, you know, put us into generalized thinking. Um, what have you found the best way to kind of approach that when it comes to mental health? So if I'm a kid, if I'm a parent, if I'm somebody that doesn't believe in something like that, where do you kind of start that conversation? What are, what's the best way to like ease into that so you can get that end result of them understanding who you are? No, it's a matter of having a conversation. So let me give the parallel, which we talked about being African-American, people who don't know me, oh, you're black, so you're this. And that generalization of your, and then I open my mouth 
and I'll hear, oh, you don't sound black. You don't act black. Hmm. I'm like, what does sound black and act black mean? Okay. And no, I don't have a name that is a lot of the names we've seen since the late 1980s in terms of different names that people may have. For example, I have a niece named Khadijah. I dread when she applies for jobs and other things because people will assume with the name Khadijah, oh, put her at the bottom of the stack because she must be African-American. Well, so what if she is? What, you, what box are you putting her in and why? Much like that, you know, I can't tell you how many times when people may hear that I have a family member or friend who lives with a mental illness, um, and I'm going to say probably six out of 10 times, people who don't know me will say, oh my God, aren't you afraid to be around them? Aren't you afraid they're going to kill you? Aren't you afraid that, oh, if it's a family member, oh, aren't you afraid that you're going to get it too? Get it too. I'm like, hmm. Wow. So yes, it's a different story about the genetics and its relationship to any illness like diabetes, like heart disease, which because of your family DNA, you may be predisposed to it, much like the chemical or the brain imbalance uh, that you have that may have you in a in a mental condition, if you will. Uh, but don't assume that, oh, well, that person with a mental illness is going to shoot me. That person with a mental illness can't think. They don't have a brain. Uh, so don't put them in a box. Have you had a conversation with them? I, I can't tell you the joy I've gotten over decades without telling my age. Um, when I'm with my sister and we go to her quarterly psychiatric visits and we're there in the waiting room, I have the most wonderful conversations to talk about everything but mental health. We talk about music. We talk about the latest games. We talk about a culture. We talk about budgets. We talk about things that, quote, normal people talk about. So when people assume, oh, you're at a mental health clinic or you're here, you're there, when you go to a hospital because you're visiting a loved one who just had surgery or who's there for an outpatient procedure, do you talk about, oh, my God, oh, this person has diabetes, this person has heart disease? You may talk about why you're, why you're there with that family member, but don't you talk about other things, too? That's not the prevalent thing you talk about in terms of the illness. You talk about mundane things with people you don't know. Likewise, when you're at a mental health clinic, you're not telling, oh, my gosh, you have that mental illness. Oh, my God, you're crazy. No, we have normal conversations, too. And so I can't tell you the joy I've had meeting some of the most wonderful people with the most interesting lives and hobbies and things I've learned, recipes I've gotten, you know. Uh, and so it's like, don't assume that if you or a loved one has to go someplace, a psychiatrist's office or a mental health clinic, that it's going to be solely focused on the illness and you need to be afraid of people because, you know, they may shoot you, they may stab you. No, that's not the case. You don't think that when you go to an ER room or when you're sitting there waiting for a loved one who's having a different kind of procedure, right? I mean, I think that's a really good perspective. Uh, I, I know I find a lot of comfort in going to group therapy. That's probably one of my yeah. favorite things because... I don't have to explain to the person who's schizophrenic next to me or bipolar, like you, like you said, you don't even ever talk about it. There's that comfortability there where it's like, it doesn't even need to be brought up. It's just kind of understood. And I know that's kind of the point of like us trying to get other people uh, to where that, um, that just that understanding that everything you just said is like, we're just people. It's just a thing. It's not who we are. It's not a personality. You know, I'm, exactly. I'm bipolar, but that's not who I am. I'm Tyler Coe. Like it is, it's just a piece of me. And so Tyler, you have to know one of my, 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 my pet peeves from a long time ago is you're a person with a bipolar condition or bipolar disorder. You're a person first. 
And and sometimes people say, Brenda, well, just get off of it. Just, just just say it. I say, yeah, but I'm a person first, or someone is a person first. So if I if I nagged you and say, okay, Tyler, I heard you say bipolar or a person, but they're a person first. So it, it goes back to the old adage, and I don't think it's it's politically correct or PC to say person first. It's just you're a person, you're a human being first, and 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 not defined by your your diagnosis. Sometimes I think. Uh, we're um, socialized or brainwashed in some cases to say, oh, we must say the illness first before the person. Okay. Yeah. And absolutely. so uh, I, I make sure because I've had my sister's permission since I was eight years old, by the way. And as HIPAA and other things came along in written form to talk about our journey, but it's always my sister Elaine. It's always my sister Elaine. Okay. That's it. That's good. And then, I, thank you and for then correcting I go, me. <laughs> and then I go on to other things because she's my sister first and her name is Elaine. That's a good habit that I need to get into. I'm Tyler and I have bipolar disorder, not I'm bipolar and I'm Tyler. That's a, that's a, that is a really good point. That is a way yeah, that I should be yeah. phrasing that. Cause yeah, that's the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. People put us in, in boxes of all kinds, regardless of what box it is, but uh, we can help them in subtle ways to get the, the, the point that we are people, we are human beings like they are. Uh, and we can refer to ourselves because we are not inanimate objects. We're human beings that touch, feel uh, and so forth. So we're, we're people for I think that's a really good message. Um, and I know that you're you're kind of spreading that message right now because you are now pretty much the executive director at NAMI. Um, what has that been like for you? I mean, what, what are you working on right now and what do you see kind of for um, the rest of your, your term doing that right now? What are you excited to uh, get to work on? Well, I work with a group of phenomenal people, but if I had to say, so I've, I've been in many different professional positions throughout the country. So I started my own consulting company back in 2004. And part of what I do is provide interim uh, executive director, interim chief executive officer, you name it. And so it's a dream come true full circle because uh, I've always had a financial and operations management background. But in 1992, I became a member of what at the time was called Texami, okay. which which then became NAMI Texas, then NAMI Austin, and now we're NAMI Central Texas. So I was an advocate because I was a family member. Fast forward, while in a financial executive position in the city of Seattle, I met someone who knew my financial capabilities, but she knew my passion for making a difference in the lives of people living with mental illness such that she invited me when she was tapped to be the president and CEO of a bankrupt mental health system in, in Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix, Scottsdale is. It served 80,000 people, many of whom were people who live with a serious mental illness. She says, Brenda, I want you to be the finance, the IT, the HR person, because what I've learned about you as a person is that, yes, you have the financial capability, but you won't slash and burn solely for the, for the bottom line of profit. And yes, we're in a deficit and we need to cure but you will make sure our programs and working with our clinical colleagues are programs that really make a difference and have an impact. So fast forward, little did I know that my financial and operations background would get into the mental health arena. And then here from 1992 to now, I've been a member, but I'm now working with an organization that I have the utmost respect for that has been so instrumental in my life as a member. Now I'm, a, and by the way, a board member, I was board chair of, of NAMI Austin. Um, from uh, 2003 to 2004, but it's a proud moment because NAMI Central Texas, as we are now known, Austin is, is, is surrounded by five other counties that 
are part of our community too. But it's like the, the if you will, the inaugural or the first executive director, Karen Reynas, who I adore and know yeah. she's done a phenomenal mm-hmm. job with passion and heart. She has worked with the boards over the eight years in time to create a phenomenal organization that is such a resource for advocacy, training, and education in this community. And so fast forward, let me answer your question. Uh, No one anticipated that COVID would have such an impact as we briefly talked about earlier, that many people are now realizing family members or people who live with a mental illness or peers, people who say, I want to be able to relate to someone who's going through a journey like me. So all that said and done, I'm excited about working with a small but powerful staff of nine people who are so passionate and they eat, breathe, sleep, you name it, NAMI and how we make a difference for improving the lives of people and their family members through support groups, through Bridges to Hope, which works with the faith community. So I'm excited about all the programs and the ones that we would aspire to have with appropriate funding. And we have a great NAMI walk, as you know, that happened Mm -hmm. on September 25th with lots of wonderful teams that were there to represent meaningful services and um, aspirations and hopes for our community to be a better and weller. That's not such a word, but a more well, more healthy community in terms of mental conditions or, or conditions of the brain. And so I'm happy to know that we have great programs. I know from when in 1992 to now, the difference in our programs, how many people we touch and impact but a silver lining, if you can even say that for a traumatic situation like COVID, a silver lining is that NAMI exists. The demand for our programs, and we learned something that's a that's sort of counterintuitive maybe. We switched or pivoted like many people did to virtual programming during COVID because many, if not most of our programs are all in person. But we had such an uptick in people wanting NAMI and its services. And so when we are migrating back to our new normal, if there is such a thing, uh, we know that we'll always have a a portion and maybe even half of our operations that will remain virtual. I think for a variety of reasons. Number one, people have access, going to one of your earlier points. They have access. Most people have a smartphone, okay? Laptops, what have you. Uh, The other thing is in Central Texas, we have grown so much that traffic is a major issue. And yeah. so people are like, I can have access and not worry about I'm going to miss something or not be able to be at family support group or, or, or what have you by virtue of saying traffic made me delayed an hour because we have that virtual capability. So I'm excited about a lot. We have phenomenal programs. And the key thing we're working on now is our budget uh, as the interim executive director. And it's a good news story, by the way. I have to make sure people know this. Uh, Karen Rain has worked with the board and, and staff, and we've grown so much that we've created a new arena that broadly is termed earned revenue, we, meaning we're looking at ways to to continue self-supporting while also seeking uh, and pursuing grant resources and other resources to sustain us and to enable us to meet the increased demand for what we do. But Karen is now Director of Workplace Programming, so she's transitioned to that, to work with workplaces that pre-COVID really, really, really wanted and need our services. So I'm interim while the board has a transition committee that's in the process of recruiting the longer-term executive director. 
So when someone says, oh, what's your dream job? I'm like, I'm doing it now. <laughs> I'm the interim executive director working with a great team, a committed board, a board committed beyond measure uh, to make sure we can continue to provide the services. But also we're trying to really figure out, uh, if you will, innovative ways to stretch our budget and be able to meet the demand. The demand is just magnified on so many levels. And so we're trying to say, how can we address the demand, but also have the funding to support and enable us to do that? I mean, I think all the work that you guys are doing, I mean, everything that you just listed is what the world needs. So thank you. Um, thank you to everybody else that works there. And I mean, there's so many groups around the country and the world that are trying to do the same thing. And I think it's fair to say that COVID was a silver lining in terms of mental health because it really is. I mean, we have so many people, you know, that I've met with or talked with online that just aren't there yet to go in person to try and yeah. get something done. And now they do have that virtual option. Like you said, almost everybody has a phone. You can get to a laptop, a computer, you could hop on a virtual event or a seminar or yeah. something like that, which is so important to have. So I think that the fact that you guys are still offering that mm-hmm. and continuing to find those ways, that's super, super important. Cause even though I'm that guy, like I want you in the room, I want you face to face. I want to talk to you. I want to be able to touch you. I know some people that is not what they can do. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's tremendous. And, you know, we have a community, Brenda, that really wants to get involved. And so I'm always asking anybody that we have on. I mean, you just talked about, a, a, you know, the array of programs that you have. But as far as their own personal lives, you know, uh, what is something, if it was a NAMI, that you would say to a person who does want to help, where would be a good place to start? What do you think is the most impactful at the ground level for somebody just kind of getting into being a middle, uh, mental advocate? You know what? So I have to say, you know, I'm 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 countering your 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 thing other than Nami because we exist and we are successful because of the tremendous volunteer support. Many of our programs would not exist if we didn't have volunteers who are trained. By the way, they're trained. But I want to add just one thing to that and come back to your point. They're trained, but we also provide, if you will balancing services for them to vent. It's almost like someone who works in hospice. Okay, two different things, but bear with me. People who work in hospice need a respite. They need a break. They need to have a place where they can go and vent. So we have strong volunteers who are, when I say committed, we have some who've been committed for more than 10 years, committed in the sense of being a volunteer to teach our programs, to teach our family, family, to go through the training, but they too need the respite. They too need a break. So we provide that service to them as well because we want to sustain them while they sustain the people that we're happy uh, helping to advocate, to helping, helping to educate, if you will, and train. So it's a long-winded story. And so I'm biased when I say what other organizations, we can always use volunteers. <laughs> Uh, and train the trainer kind of, of things. Uh, so that would be first and foremost. And you know, there are other um, avenues in, in terms of other nonprofits that exist in this city and in our, if you will, Central Texas area that are doing phenomenal work. But I'm gonna come back to an earlier point, uh, Tyler. Remember one in four, so 25% of the population. So think about other nonprofits that are serving, particularly those in social and human services, most likely, one in four of the people they are serving are people who live with a mental illness. So I can tell you, I have a short list, a very short list of, of nonprofits that if I had other bandwidth and time and hours in the day, I would volunteer with. Uh, but I would assure you that if you find something that you're passionate about, that no matter how challenging or difficult the subject matter, 
if you're passionate about it, more than likely you'll be volunteering and supporting an organization where someone is experiencing and living with uh, a mental illness or a mental condition. That's good advice. Um, and yeah, I don't mean to disparage NAMI. I mean, I'm part of the gang. So like, of course, I'm biased. I'm biased. Too. <laughs> I'm biased. It's my number one go-to. Um, I, I'm just, I, it, I think that's good advice for anybody trying to get in there. Is that, yeah, if you are that passionate, you are going to find uh, that avenue to help. Um, and it, it's so super important to do it. I, I try and tell people all the time, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record either. But um, I mean, I, I've told my audience so much that getting involved with you guys has, has given me such a different perspective and the biggest thing is that it's educating me the more education i get the more knowledge i get the more i can help put that back out into the world so um i hope anybody can i mention one thing tyler let yes me, ma'am let me say this you just said something that you know typically when we think about profit and loss and return on investment or what is commonly called roi we think about it in the monetary sense but you just said something we have supported you in your education and look at the return on that investment by virtue of this program. This program is impacting and reaching out and touching so many people that we NAMI will take some credit for helping you help this larger audience, right? So when we think about the impact of NAMI and the return on the investment we make by providing advocacy, training and education services, this is a clear example of how it has quote an ROI or return on that investment. I appreciate that. That's very kind yeah. of you to say. I mean, I, small return, but we're hoping it gets bigger and bigger. It's so. huge. It's huge. <laughs> um, before I let you go, Brenda, um, I always kind of like to ask our guests, and I wanted to ask you today if there's something that you know, you're know you working on personally when it comes to your own mental health and your process. I always like to give something up for the individual, you know, for myself, our audience. You know, Is there something that you've been practicing on or noticing or uh, something you've seen or something you've been affected by lately that's made you think like, hey, I got to work on this? You know what? There's so much negativity in the world, whether it's on the political, social, just all levels. So I'm, I'm, I'm not making this partisan, but just in general, uh, the whole COVID situation has taken all of us, quote, for a loop to, to really mm -hmm. reprioritize or, or say what's what matters most to us in life. But what helps me I tell people it's my sanity. I walk on average a minimum of four miles, but on average five to seven miles each day. And it's the time where I have my phone with me, but my phone is off and it's not on vibrate. So that means I can pray, I can cuss, I can cry, I can have hope, um, I can dream, and I can create what I call great ideas and think best because it's just the, the, the birds and the, the, the quietness that allow me to hear, okay? So for me, that is my, my, my mental wellness. If I don't do my walk, people can probably tell in my disposition, oh, she didn't walk today <laughs> because, you know, I didn't get it out, so to speak. And so for me, that is truly a, a saving grace. And, you know, many of us are in um, positions where we're caregiving, where we're being supportive to, you know, family members, our community, to causes. Um, and self-care is so hard for many of us. Myself, I'm probably the, the, the biggest violator of self-care. But my walks help me stay mentally stable and well. But also that time to just breathe, be alone, and to know that my, my well-being is equally as important. And it gives me the energy and the capacity. It fills my tank to be available to help my sister with her caregiving needs, to be kind and helpful to others. And one comment I have to say is that walk or 
sometimes I have to do the imaginary walk because for whatever schedule reason, I wasn't able to get out. But I continue to learn that everybody is dealing with something. We just don't know what. Uh, everybody is dealing with something. So we see John or Jane Doe standing in line at the grocery store. We're frustrated because they have 16 items and this is the 15 item aisle and we go off. But you know what? We don't know what that person. So I try not to be as judgmental because I have to confess. I confess. I can be judgmental and I can be very critical. I know me <laughs> and I appreciate the <laughs> feedback. But at the same time, everybody's dealing with something. So instead of me personalizing it or saying, you know, that person got 16 items and I really need to get out of here. You know, it may be that this is their 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 break, their respite from caring for a loved one. They just lost a job. They have they're recuperating from COVID. This is their first time out. So they have, you know, COVID brain, so to speak. And so, oh, this is 15 items. I have 16. Oh, oh. So it, it, that's a small example, not being facetious, but everybody is dealing with something, whether they tell you or not. So I try not to assume that Jane or John Doe is uh, just a bad, bad, bad person, unless I see evidence to the contrary. <laughs> Well, listen, Brenda, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, you're a woman after my own heart because I'm a stickler for the 15 items. I, oof, I need to practice that. I'll work yeah. on that. If you're going to work on it, I'm going to work on it too. But yeah, I need to, that that will also send me over the edge. It's because I, I view it in a different way and I know that you're right. I have no idea what that person's dealing with. And that's yeah. a great message uh, to leave us with, Brenda. So thank you for that. And Thank you for everything today. Thank you for sharing with us and educating us and moving us uh, forward so we can continue the fight and getting us all involved. And just, yeah, thank you in general for just being you. It, I think it's a comforting thing. That's when I first met you. I'm like, the more Brenda's we have, it's going to be okay. And we need that hope that there are those good people out there helping. Like Mr. Rogers' mom said, like the helpers. You always look for the helpers. You're one of the helpers. So thank you for doing that. Well, I'm among hundreds because of NAMI Central Texas. And I say that because I've gotten to know our newer volunteers, people who weren't around when I was around back in the day, going back to 1992. And then I have fond memories of a lot of the people uh, who were associated with NAMI back in the day with me, who I see, and it's like seeing family again. And so it's very, very nice to, to be in a great family uh, that you love, you care for, and you know they're doing things out of passion, kindness, and wanting to make a difference. So thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you and hope that we stay friends yes, uh, and, oh, and yeah. connected and uh, resources for others who know that we exist to really be able to, to provide them with resources or avenues that may be helpful to them and their family members. Brenda, thank you so much. Uh, you are a part of our family now, so you are welcome back anytime you want to come hang out. Um, you're the best. Uh, I hope uh, the best for you this week. And uh, I actually mm -hmm. think I'm going to see you this week. And I think we have something that's else. Right. Might have to talk about it later on the show. Yeah, that's okay I'm with you. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. It's Sunday, right? Not it Saturday. Is. I got it my is. dates all mixed up. Exactly. So <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. You know, you're among family and friends when you can say, hey, it's Monday. And I can put in the chat and others can say, oh my God, where, where, where is Tyler today? Tuesday. You're, you're oh, here with man. us. And we have those moments. So we, we can relate. Thank you so uh, much. And All thank right. you to the listeners who, who tune in. Oh, thank you so much, Brenda. All right, we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Take care. Bye. Oh, man, she's great. Brenda is awesome. Like, she's this, she's the person, the first time I met Brenda, like, um, she just takes you by the arm, and then you're just, like, in.
And I'm like, what do you need? You're great. I just want to listen to listen to you for hours. Um, and the first time we talked, like she told, she was able to tell the full story. Obviously, we can't, you know, go on uh, uh, as long on the show. Um, but it's tremendous. You know, she touched a little bit about traveling to Brazil, but like she is like families everywhere, and it's and uh, you know, there's a story behind everyone as far as like what they were affected with uh, to really let you know that it's like a global thing. And of course, I mean, you know, it's funny the present uh, the presenter I was doing. Uh, my presentation with today, we talked about this, is that it's repetition, repetition, repetition when it comes to this mental health stuff. So Brenda talking about needing to go on a walk. How many guys or how many times have you guys heard on this channel, go for a walk? And I still ain't going for my walks. Maybe one of these days is going to break through my brain and I'm going to go on my darn walk to make myself feel better. Um, but Brenda is amazing and all the work that she's been doing. And you've heard her you heard her talk about it. I mean, she's been doing this for over 30 plus years. Uh, and there's so many other people out there that are doing it. And I think all of that is to say, with having her on as well, that no matter who you are, if you are somebody who is in that group of, of being a minority, whatever that may be, you are not alone. And there are people that are going to try and help you out to the best of their abilities, whether you do not have the means to go get help. Um, whether uh, your your family situation does not necessarily fall into the category of believing in mental health or believing that you need to go get help. That's not true. You can find other people that can get you to that point. Um, so I'm glad Brenda could come on and talk about all that because we have to talk about that because it's for all. And the whole thing, guys, with the world, and I know I'm preaching to the choir right here, is that if we fix everyone, we're going to fix the world. So let's go fix the world by helping each other out. It ain't that hard. We make it hard, though. We make it very difficult on ourselves. But Brenda is one of those people that is a helper and is making everybody else um, see the value in treating yourself with self-care and then doing the same thing for others. So uh, thank you guys for joining the show tonight. I'm going to stick around for a little bit of post-show to interact with chat and take any questions you guys have. We will be back next week, and I actually think we're going to be doing Tuesday again. i got to get my dates right. I got to figure that out. I am not quite sure, but I will get back to you guys whether or not it is Monday or Tuesday. As always, I hope you guys have a good week. Uh, I have so much love for you. Thank you, Dr. Bacon, for moderating our show. Uh, thank you guys for watching. Thank, uh, thank you to those listening. We will see you next week.